So before we uh, get into the bulk of our text, I want you to put on your philosophical caps for the moment. And so if you didn't uh, plan on thinking this morning, I'm going to give you a few moments to kind of settle yourselves, get another cup of coffee, because before we get into the text, I want you to think. Because there is something in our lives that has influenced all of us. We grew up with it without even thinking about it, and we don't realize how much it's, it's influenced our lives. And most of us never really consider the effect of individualism. Now, you may not know what that word means, but it is a system of thought that focuses on the individual, where we become the center of everything. We become the center of our universe. We, we read, we look at the news, we do everything we do on how things relate to us. And it says a lot about us as a culture, it says a lot about us as people. And we just do this. It's ingrained in us. It's a very American thing. It's a very Western thing. It's a very secular thing. But this is not the way most of the people throughout history have thought, and this is not the way most people in the, the East think. Uh, in our culture, we focus on the individual rather than the group. If we're to defer to one or the other, it's the individual. How do I feel about this? What does this mean for me? But in most of the world who uh, are influenced by the Eastern religions and Eastern cultures, there's more of a group mentality of thinking about others and thinking about the shame and honor of a group or a city or a people or a family. In America, that's a little foreign to us. And we tend to think about ourselves first. But what this does is it puts us at the center of things. And, we, and we've all been there. We've all wanted to do things ourselves. And we've all wanted to get the credit ourselves. And we've all wanted no one else to take any credit for what we've done. And a lot of times that carries itself into the church. And we don't even realize it. Because we are trained as a culture to think about ourselves first. And it can tend to make religion, Christianity as well, individualistic. About ourselves. It's between me and God. You stay out of it. I've got this handled. God knows me. You can't question me. You can't judge me. This is between me and him. But it, it creates this category of island Christians. Have you ever heard that, that term where a Christian lives on an island by themselves without any contact with anyone else? And there's no biblical idea of that at all. That is not from Scripture, but many times we tend toward that. And there are many people who their entire Christian life is them in God, so they say. But they're starved by the, the fellowship of believers, and they're missing out on the picture of God redeeming a people for himself. And it breaks my heart when I talk to people who say, I'm a Christian, but I don't have time for church. I haven't been to church in years. Or they don't love the people of God. They love their comfort more than other people who Christ died for. It is the height of arrogance to say it is all about me and not taking into consideration that God is bringing a people to himself. And the focus of God's redemption is a holy people, a holy God and a holy people. Now, when we're in, in school, probably the thing we like the least is group projects you've ever had a group project, you have to do anything with a group, whether you're in drama or, or sports or, or whatever it is, you know the worst thing about group projects is other people. <laughs> Someone said amen. There was a couple of those. Because people are difficult to deal with, even in the, the church. We are to compliment one another and love one another, but the people are the problem. The hardest thing about ministry, I'll be honest with you, is, is you guys. If it wasn't for you guys, ministry would be easy. 
But the most rewarding part about ministry is also you guys. And the part about the Christian life that is the most rewarding is we get to see each other grow. And the Lord uses us in each other's lives as much as he uses his, his word. The Reformers talked a lot about other Christians being a means of grace. That God puts people in our lives to help us grow for our sanctification. Sometimes to encourage us and sometimes to teach us patience. Most often to teach us patience. We're a culture that wrestles between individualism and collectivism. Sports, we're a, we're a big sports nation. We love sports and we understand the concept of teamwork in sports. These days, maybe not so much. Seems like everyone's out for personal stats and all that. But anyone who's ever played sports, everyone who's ever been in a group, how well will you do if the catcher is only playing for himself? The quarterback is only thinking about himself. The lineman is only thinking about not getting hit. You're not going to do too well unless your team works together. And Scripture talks about the same thing. The language used in Scripture is of a corporate nature, a body that fits and works together. God is a covenant God who makes a covenant with his people. He doesn't have millions of individual covenants with individual people. He puts a rule over his people, and he has expectations for his people. Look at, think about all the analogies in Scripture of the body, the bride, the church, the great cloud of witnesses. In Revelation, there's this great, joyous chorus. All of these pictures are diverse, yet singular in nature. They are made up of individuals, but the focus is on the unity. And there's the picture of a, of a family. Jesus says, who? My mother and my brother and my sister. They're those who do the will of the Lord. So there is this intimate nature that happens among believers that is unique. Because if you look around the room, we come from different places, different ages, different races, different upbringings. But in Christ, we have all things in common. We look around and we are brothers and sisters in him. So much so that when Jesus taught us to pray, have you ever thought about the words of the Lord's Prayer that we should all know in our sleep? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. This is Jesus who, whose high priestly prayer, his one goal for his people was so that they would be one in him as he is one in the Father. And the rest of the Christian life is about balance. Because ultimately there is individual responsibility. There is no collective salvation. When we stand before God, we stand and answer for our sins, either by the blood of Christ or by our own blood. So we can't remove that. But there is this tension is, how do we live with individuals? How do I strengthen my relationship with the Lord? But also help my brothers and sisters grow. Look at the body of Christ as a family, as a group, as a people. If you don't like Christians, you're probably in for a long road. And that's why we stress membership. And we're going to be talking about that the next few weeks. We're going to come together as the body and come together as members because we are one people. We want to live out that picture. And as we look at the people of Israel today, Moses is leading them. In our passage, he's never mentioned them. Moses may be the mouth, but he's not the whole body. I may be the mouth. It's not the first time I've been called that. But I am not the whole body. 
And that's the sad thing about today's modern churches is that we exalt pastors. We exalt personalities, but we know nothing about the people. Well, this person has a successful church. Well, tell me about the people. Are they healthy? We have no idea. And it's sad that we lift up people. And so much so, many times we read the Bible and we see the Bible as a series of individual stories, of individual people. Have you ever taken a step back and realized that I see the Bible, and I had to recognize this in myself, I see the Bible as Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Paul. I see people, a set of individual stories. Yet when you take a step back, this is about God's people. When you look at Revelation and God is bringing all things to consummation, there are no individual names. It is a cloud of witnesses. It is a chorus of voices. It is, it is the people of God being drawn into his perfect fellowship and union once and forever. And our perfect picture of this is the Trinity. God puts this on display for us. Unity in diversity. The Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit, but yet they are one. One God Three persons, different aspects, different attributes to the same being. And the body of Christ is supposed to be the same way. You look different, I look different, you think different, you have different gifts than I do. But we are one in Christ, and we are a people of God together. And so the next two weeks, these next two passages, we're going to be talking about the people of God in general. Because everything in Hebrews 11 up to this point has been talking about individuals. We've looked at Abraham, we've looked at Sarah, uh, we've looked at Cain and Abel, we've looked at Moses, but now it's the people. And this is a reminder to never forget that God does work in individual leaders, but he works in them to move and guide his people. And we act in unison when we are obeying and trusting the Lord. Uh, So turn to Hebrews 11 for me, and we're going to read verse 29. We're going to talk about the context, then we're going to talk about some implications for this. So Hebrews eleven twenty nine says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the witness of your word that tells the story of redemption, that you seek and save a people for your purposes, for the sake of your name, to give you glory. Lord, let us be people who relish being the children of the living God. Let us be people who come together as brothers and sisters to encourage and strengthen one another in Christ to see ourselves not as individuals on an island, but a people, a mighty nation, a royal priesthood, living stones built up on our foundation who is Christ. Lord, I just pray that this text this morning, that this scripture will come alive in a new way to us, to open our eyes to what you are doing to contrast the life of the believer with the life of the world and to encourage us of where our identity is and what we have to look forward to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to give you some context to this. Uh, Turn to Exodus chapter 14. Now everyone should know this. I'm not going to read through all of Exodus 14, 
But I want to pull out some details that I think are important for understanding this. And I think this is what's driving the writer of Hebrews. So if you turn with me to Exodus chapter 14, I want to start in verse 13. I want you to keep a marker there. If you've got something there, set it there because we're going to go back to it a couple times. We're going to go back and forth to uh, Exodus a couple times. I'm going to start in verse 13. Exodus 14, 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which we will work for you today, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I just want to stop there. That is great pastoral advice. Shut up and let God work. I love that. Some of the best advice any of you will ever get. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through it, through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and, chariots and his horsemen. Let's talk about where we are here. So remember, uh, we've been looking at uh, Israel and we've been looking at Moses' ministry. Last week, Deshaun talked about the Passover and bringing Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. And so they're in the wilderness for a few days and they turn around and here comes Pharaoh again. Pharaoh didn't learn his lesson the first 10 times or the first 10 plagues. Here he comes in his arrogance because Pharaoh hardened his heart. But God also hardened his heart for the sake of his glory. And the people, we skipped over this, we're going to get to it later. And the verses just before this, the people complained. They wanted to go back to Egypt. You're going to see that God had a plan for them. And that nothing is impossible with God when they're standing before this sea. The Red Sea is far um, as, as we know where, where they cross. could be anywhere from 8 to 20 miles wide. And there are many different places that the people postulate where this is. We're not going to go into that. But imagine uh, going through the, the, the desert for seven days, and then you come to water, and you see 20 miles, even eight miles of water in front of you. And this army, a pharaoh behind you, and you have no weapons. you just left with, with Egypt's gold. So not, not only did you take their workforce, but you took all their possessions. But God is doing something amazing in his people. And God is doing something that only he can do, so only he gets the glory. And I love some of the terminology in here when Moses says, remember those people in Egypt that you want to go back to? You will never see them again. Never. And God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. This word host uh, can, uh, a lot of times it's used for, for angels or, or heavenly beings. What God was doing, as Deshaun said, each one of these plagues was directed at a god in Egypt. And so God is saying, I've conquered his gods once. I'm going to wipe out all the people so there is no question. So they can never claim that any god saved them. I am the Lord. So this is, this is God driving the action here. Shut up and watch me work. All right, continue to go to the end of the, uh, the chapter, to verse 27. 
We'll fill in some of the gaps in a little bit. So this is the consummation of it all. So Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Last verse, pay attention. This is so important. Why is God doing all this? Why did he do it this way? Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and and in his servant Moses. He did it for his glory. We didn't read verse 3 and 4 where it also says, I will get glory over Pharaoh. I tell you guys all the time, what is repeated is important. Three times in here, God says explicitly, I am going to get glory. And what happens at the end? They fear the Lord and they believed in him. So God got the glory deserved to him, the glory that Pharaoh wanted for himself. And by faith, the people, when they crossed the Red Sea, So this is the first time again in Hebrews 11 we're looking at a people. We're looking at the people of of God, not an individual. This is a corporate faith. By trusting in God, they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And this is God's redemption for his people on display. I will save you. And there is nothing on this earth that can stop me. And is it the peril of the Egyptians who thought just assumed that God would protect them as well when they shook their fist at him, quite literally. And so all of Scripture is, has this tension between the people of God and the people of the world, between the righteous and the wicked. All, from Genesis 3.15, where the serpent and the seed of the woman will be at odds with each other, so at the very end, when the lamb will banish Satan, the dragon, forever. The forces of evil and the forces of God go against each other. But as in this example, as in all of of Scripture, we see who has the final word. Is God's hand on the righteous, his people? Or or is it on the world? I think we know the answer to that. But uh, if you turn to me to Psalm 1, Psalm 1 probably has the best picture of this. Psalm 1 explains what's going on in the rest of the Psalms and and in all of Scripture for that matter. It's this beautiful picture of the contrast between the people of God and the people of the world, between the righteous and the wicked. Listen to the language here. And think about the people of Israel crossing on dry ground through the Red Sea. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand 
in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of his righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. The Red Sea in Israel is this great picture of faith. And you think about this for a moment. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine you've been in slavery for all of your life, for 400 years, and now you've seen God wreak havoc on Egypt. And you've got to walk for seven days in the wilderness and come to this, this sea. God is protecting you. He's guiding you by a flaming pillar at night. And he's, and he's covering you with a cloud during the day. And then this great sea is raised up. These massive walls of water are standing straight. As if to give glory to God. Look what you have done. And Moses says, come. We're going to the promised land. We're going to safety on the other side. Walking with the Lord is like walking on dry ground. When the rest of the world looks like it's going to come crashing down on you, the way of the righteous is sure. The ground is solid. He guards his people from the front and the rear and on both sides. No one can come to his people. And as they walk across the bottom of the ocean that should be murky and sandy, it is solid. As if they are walking on a solid rock. The songs we sing are so intentional. This theme is carried throughout Scripture. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The passage that Deshaun read earlier was intentional. Jesus gives the story of the man who builds his house on a rock and the man who builds his house on the sand. And when the rain comes and the storm comes, who is going to be secure? What other rock is there than you, Lord? The people of God walked on that rock. I want to read one of my favorite passages. I turn to Isaiah chapter 43. I love this. If this does not get you excited about being the people of God, you need to check your pulse. Isaiah 43, we're going to read 1 through 7. And I want to read this how I believe Isaiah heard this. Because this is not something you whisper. This is something you shout and declare. And also picture this, as the people of God walking through the Red Sea, as the people of God walking through the trials and the storms of life, this should be our soundtrack. But now thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called me by my name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, bring my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. 
Thus saith the Lord. God is not only bringing Israel out of their slavery. He's bringing people from every tongue, tribe, and nation out of their slavery. Sons and daughters that he is calling home. And no Red Sea, no army of Egypt can take them out of his hand. Our God is the mighty maker of all. And for the sake of his glorious name, he loved us. For the sake of his glorious name, he is redeeming his people. So the walk of the believer should stand on firm ground. This is the promise of God to his people. And it should remind us of the futility of anyone who tries to attack God's people. The futility of standing on anything else than the solid, firm foundation of the Lord. It is foolishness to build a foundation on anything else. We put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites. Now let's put ourselves in the shoes of the Egyptians. Now think about the arrogance and the foolishness here, right? This was not that long ago. This was eight days ago. You got flies, you got frogs, darkness, boils, your animals died, all of your firstborn dead. And then they say, sure, let's go after them. What could go wrong? Nah, we're good. How, how silly is that? You don't think, it didn't never enter their minds that when they approach Israel and they're already halfway across, they see these gigantic walls of water and say, the God who did that could probably drop it at any point. I think I'm going to stay on, on dry ground. But that is the arrogance of sin. The wickedness that assumes on the power of God. That assumes God's protection in a way that He is not commanded and that He is not willed. And assumes that they can receive the protection without the fear of the Lord. People say all the time, if you show me miracles, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Jesus showed you miracles and you killed them. Egypt saw miracles and they wanted to kill God's people even more. Miracles are not what make people believe. It's the work, the Holy Spirit, and the fear of God in you. No magic show. The power of God. Egypt attempted to make their way across. They attempted the same thing that God's people did. They attempted to put God to the test, which Jesus said, do not do. They attempted to presume on God's protection that did not belong to them. There's a great example in Acts 19. You don't have to turn there. I want to tell you. This is one of, probably one of the best lines in all of Scripture. When the church is, is growing and Paul is at the, the, the height of his ministry, and he's performing miracles, so much so that even cloths of, of, of little scraps of his garment are healing people. There are these sons of Sceva, one of the uh, scribes. He's got seven sons. And they want to perform miracles too. Like, oh, I want to do that too. I want to do what, what, what they're doing. Like Egypt, I want to presume on the power of God. So what they say is they try to cast out demons by saying, I cast out a demon in the name of Jesus that Paul talks about. They don't even know him. They're just referencing him secondhand. And the demons is one of the best lines ever. Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard of. But basically, who the are you? You know? And what do they do after that? 
So these guys who want to perform miracles, who want to get on Paul's coattails, who want to use the name of Jesus incorrectly, these demons jump on them, strip them naked, and send them out into the city. This is the, the humility, the, excuse me, the humiliation that everyone who presumes on the power of the Lord deserves. Jesus, I know. Even the demons know and shudder. Paul, I've heard of. You, not so much. And pagans all the time try to borrow on the power of the Lord. This is what Egypt was doing. They attempt to use the benefit of the Lord's works without any knowledge and fear of him. Let's look at some examples. They attempt to pray. You ever notice that when things go wrong, people who have no knowledge of God, no concern for God all the rest of their lives, but all of a sudden, now when something goes wrong, they assume that, that okay, these other people pray and it works for them. Maybe it will work for me. But if he wasn't God yesterday, why is he going to be God today? If your God didn't create the earth and does not control it, then why bother? Why pray in the name of someone you don't know? Why assume the intimacy of the people of God, someone has no connection with the Lord? Also, pagans appeal to morality. They say, well, you, well, of course you shouldn't murder. You shouldn't say things that hurt people's feelings. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't do these things. Well, why? If there is no God, if there is no moral standard, if there is no judgment, if you will not give account to a holy and righteous God, who cares? Why do you assume that there is morality? On what grounds? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about people who claim morality with no basis for it at all? This is just like Egypt claiming the, the, the dry ground that God provided for his people with no basis for it at all. Another thing that the world claims is the uh, principles and elements of God in nature. Science is based on an orderly universe. There are laws of nature. But what are the basis for those laws? How can you even count on consistency? How can you count on the laws of nature? How can you count on things to be like they were today, tomorrow, unless there is a God who says, they will not change until I come again? But they presume on the powers of God and they attempt to stand on ground that is not meant for them. And what's interesting is that the power of the Lord tests the people of God, and it leads to their sanctification and to their safety. But the power of the Lord tests the wicked, finds them lacking, and they are condemned. They are drowned in their own sin. And it was their faith in the Lord that saved them. It was their belief and fear of God that brought them safely to the other side. And the same events that test and, and try and prove the faith of the, of the faithful condemn the wicked. God's people can count on his protection, but the wicked can't. The same fire that purifies the gold burns off the impurities. The same water that protected the people drowned the wicked. Now, there's a great passage for this. If you would turn to uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. So Peter's telling the reason why he's writing this second letter. Some interesting things here. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. 
In both of them, I am stirring, you, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. People shake their fist at God. People question and doubt God's promises and God's commandments. This gives us an indication of what's going on in the mind of the Egyptians. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell, fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were since the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that, by means of these, the world that, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But, the same, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There is a doubting of God that happens in the wicked, that rage against the righteous, that mock God. This is what happened in the flood. The water that created the earth will drown the wicked. This is what happened in the Red Sea. And there is a promise of judgment that is to come. Psalm 1 told us that the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. When the judgment of God came down on the armies of Egypt, they were found wanting. And they received the punishment that was due their sin. We see Israel, the people of God, being led out into safety. And we see that in contrast with the armies of Egypt, the wicked who do not want God's people to prosper, who shake their hand at God, and God who has the final say. There's a couple things I want to draw your attention to here. Because if you're paying attention, then there's a couple questions you may want to ask yourself. Because remember I said we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 14. Let, let's go back. Because if you remember, it doesn't really seem like they were that faithful, does it? And I, I skipped over this intentionally, but let's go back to chapter 14 and look at verse 10. Because right before Moses tells them to shut up and watch God work, he's, he's saying that for a reason. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of God lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What a stupid thing to say, there's no graves in Egypt. That's, that, that's, what, that's what fear will do to you. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Seven days in. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. That's what they really sounded like. For it would have been better for us to serve in Egypt than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which we will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you, who you have seen today, you shall never see them again, and the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Every other example in Hebrews 11 is of saving faith. So is this an example of saving faith or no? Yes? No? Just like the crossing of the Red Sea gives us a picture of the people of God visibly throughout history and even today. 
Because even today, there are millions of people who go to church, who stand right next to believers, who go through all the motions, who look like they are a part of the people of God, but have no knowledge and fear of him. They do not trust him. This is exactly what's going on here in Israel. There is a sense that we see a church visible. We see people gathered. But invisibly, there are saints. There are wheat and there are chaff. And Jesus said, let the chaff, let the weeds grow up with the wheat. Let them be for now. I'm going to clean them out later. And this is what was going on in the, in the life of Israel. Because they were whining, they were longing for Egypt, they were lying. Oh, please let us serve the Egyptians. No one was saying that when they were in Egypt. No one says in sin, oh, please let me continue in my sin and brokenness. But when things get difficult, then it's easy to say, that looked better back there than it does here having to trust the Lord. And so there is an example of common grace going on here. That the rain falls in the just and the unjust. That God saves his people among all those fools who long to be back in Egypt. Just like when Paul was about to be shipwrecked, he saved everyone else on the ship because of Paul's faith, so that his people would not perish. Then we have to ask ourselves, so did all of Israel have faith? Deuteronomy 32 says about this generation that they are perverse and they have no faith. It's not a glowing recommendation for the people of God, but God is continuing the line of the faithful. And one thing we need to look at in this passage, it's the power of God to save. And he uses water to do it, to bring imminent death to life. But just like in our salvation, it is not the water that saves. It is faith in the one who has power over the water. Those are the ones who are ultimately saved. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 is be the last passage that we look at. has a great example in this for us. 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to look at 1 through 6. Because Paul is talking about this very same example and what it means for us. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Pay attention here, this word gets important. Nevertheless, with most of them, most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6 says, Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So when Paul looks at this, he says most of them are desiring evil. Most of them God was not pleased with. They all walked through the same water. They all went through the same circumstances. They were all delivered. Water came out of the same rock, which was Christ. It was only those who trusted in the provision of the Lord who were ultimately saved. So the ones who are ultimately saved are not the ones who passed through the water. The one who has faith and the one who has authority over the water. So that's why he draws the connection to baptism here. This is important. It's important for what we believe about baptism, what we believe about the Christian life. Because there are two uh, sacraments that we believe that Jesus instituted to continue in the life of, church, of the church. And it is baptism and communion. Which we will do communion today. But baptism, 
The word means an immersion. The, the same way they were immersed in the water, the water was over their heads and they were saved by walking in faith with the Lord. It's the same picture of baptism today. It is not the water that saves. It is not the act of being baptized that saves you. But it is being immersed in the grace of God, trusting in Him for your salvation. That you, But when you come up out of the water, you're coming into new life. You're coming into the promised land, the kingdom of God. And that was to be the picture for the people of God. But most of them missed it. Sadly, most people who attend churches, many people who are baptized, miss it. If I just do this, then I will be saved. Because if you're trying to do anything other than trusting in Christ for your salvation, there is no salvation in that. You might as well be the Egyptians, who are presuming on the power of God with no fear and no knowledge of Him. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's why Paul says here that God was not pleased with them. They had no faith. The ones who crossed the Red Sea by faith, the ones who believed in the Lord, even though the weeds were scattered among them. You see the difference between those who trust in, in a process and those who trust in the Lord. This is why what we believe and who we believe in is so important. Israel and Egypt passed through the same water, but who was saved? The people who were founded on the solid rock, the people who walked on dry ground, the real solid ground on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And the people who are immersed in him through faith, they are the ones who are saved. They are the people of God. And if you, and excuse me, and if not, you'll be drowned in your own arrogance like the Egyptians with all the wrath of God coming down on you like giant walls of water. It's the picture of condemnation against the wicked who presume upon the grace of the Lord. So how do we conclude this morning? Uh, just a couple things to remember. Everything God does is for his glory. And so we need to ask ourselves, when we don't understand why did God do things this way, when we read scripture and, and we think, how could this make sense with the God that I've made up for myself in my mind? And a lot of times we, we do that. This brings God glory because it shows his power of salvation. It shows his concern for his people, his love for the righteous, and his victory over the wicked in their end, in their condemnation. This, bring, this brings God glory because it shows a picture of redemption in one event. God's people saved through faith. The wicked destroyed in their arrogance. And so how is that an encouragement to us? Bringing all the way back to the beginning, we are a people united in Christ. On that solid rock, we stand together as God's people. It is only by faith that we receive this privilege to be called the people of God. And I think a good practice for us as we go forward, when we sing a lot of these songs, that are spoken of in the first person, I. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We should look at them in, in the third person as well. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved wretches like we. Because we 
are sinful together. We were slaves in Egypt. We were slaves to our sin brought out by Christ. In one final sacrifice, he died for the many. And our firm foundation is on him. Everything else is sinking sand. Uh, one of the things that I want to encourage us with, and there's a reason why we sing every week. And I'm glad that Hunter is intentional about talking about these things. Why do we gather? Because our theology, what we know about God, should always lead to doxology. Should always lead to praise about God. And so I want to read a hymn for you. You can turn there in your hymnals if you want. How firm a foundation. It's number 342. It's this great picture of the provision of the Lord. There's a reason why these hymns stand the test of time. Because there are eternal truths here, and it is directed to the saints. It is directed to the body. It is directed to God's people of all times and all places. And it tells of his provision. It tells how he commands the weather. And he commands all of the forces for our good and for his glory. So I'm going to read this, and we're going to take uh, communion after. I just want to give you a few moments Close your eyes and meditate on these words after, we, after I read them. And then I'll give the words of institution for communion. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to you He has said, to you for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, or be not dismayed. For I am thy God, and I will still give you aid. I will strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand. I will uphold you by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design the dross to consume, and the gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I will never, no never, no never forsake.